Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies. Welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a conversation with a local developer of a small Lakewood community retail outlet. That was extremely, extremely difficult decision from a financial standpoint, but it was an easy decision from a human standpoint. We decided to stop trying to collect rent and try to figure out how to work together with our tenants. But first, the latest information as it relates to the coronavirus here in Georgia. As of noontime today, there are 27,023 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,140, and there are 5,218 hospitalized. Now, that's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, again, as of noontime today. Meanwhile, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's statewide stay-at-home order expired last night, just before midnight. In a statement released yesterday, the governor said he's still, quote, urging Georgians to continue to stay home whenever possible. And he called on businesses to maintain social distancing and sanitation rules through May 13th. And the governor also extended a stay-at-home order for the elderly and those who are, quote, medically fragile. That order will last through June 12th. Now, what does all this mean for Georgians moving forward? And here to recap what's been another interesting week, joining me as always does, our WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands, Sam Whitehead. Sam, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, Rose. Thanks for having me. Governor Kemp has taken a lot of hits, not just here in in Georgia and not just nationally, but internationally as well. Uh, How would you sum up how the governor, his reaction to all the criticism? Sure. So, um, you know, he really seems to be taking it in stride. And I think we can say that just because of how he's moved ahead with this plan to kind of let this shelter in place expire and to start to open the state back up. You know, if comments by the president can't even change the governor's mind, um, then it's maybe hard to think um, who would need to say something to get him to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So like you mentioned, these, uh, you know, the statewide shelter in place that was put in uh, last month is now gone. Uh, There are still some restrictions, though. Um, We can talk about those a little bit. You you mentioned briefly for people who are elderly or medically fragile, they're going to have to shelter in place until June 12th. Mm -hmm. Um, This is people who are 65 and up or maybe people with chronic conditions, um, lung or liver disease, heart disease, or asthma. Um, And there's also been this kind of renewed focus on uh, assisted living facilities and nursing homes. Um, These are settings where we've seen uh, big flare-ups in cases here in Georgia. Um, Kemp has asked, um, has ordered rather places like that to kind of step up their cleaning protocols to make sure residents there are kept safe. So there are still restrictions in place? There are. um, 
you know, and Kemp has asked all Georgians to continue maintaining social distancing rules, even though kind of the official rules have been relaxed. Um, he's asked them to limit their, limit their travel um, and to follow certain best practices. Sam, for local governments and cities, uh, we'll use Atlanta. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms had her own local restrictions in place. Now, the governor's order supersedes those, correct? That's my understanding. It doesn't seem that local governments are going to be able to put in rules that are more or less restrictive. Um, And you mentioned Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. She's been very outspoken this week about the governor's decision to open things back up. Um, She's been making a lot of appearances on uh, cable news, um, kind of expressing her displeasure. Um, She also uh, wrote an opinion piece in The Atlantic this week that essentially Mm -hmm. said that relaxing some of these social distancing measures, opening back up the state could be deadly. And and she makes a point that a number of public health experts have been making, which is that our healthcare system is not overwhelmed right now, Bottom says, because people have been social distancing um, and maybe now is not the time to let up. There's this maybe fear that if we do relax things, um, you know, the, the disease could really have a resurgence here in the state. And Georgia has now officially partially been open for business for about a week now. But it, I imagine, Sam, it's too soon to know what effect, if any, this has had on the number of COVID-19 cases in our state. You know, I think that's fair to say, Rose, and it really is important to think about how this disease works. So it takes time for people to even know that they might have this thing in the first place. The The CDC says it can take between two and 14 days before symptoms even appear. And then say a symptom shows up in an individual, they then have to go to the doctor, they then have to go get a test, they then have to wait for those test results to come back. And then those results have to be reported to the state. So all that takes time. Um, And the public health experts I've been uh, speaking with say that we won't really know the impacts of certain decisions like opening up the state for at least a week or two, because it takes time for these cases to get reported up to the state. This disease really takes time to show itself in, in, in communities. And Sam, speaking of data, earlier this week, the CDC released a new report that revealed the disproportionate effect of this pandemic on communities of color. I understand the report used a sample of 305 patients here in Georgia. What do you know about that? Yeah, so this was one of the CDC's kind of weekly reports on a public health topic. A lot of these recently have been, of course, about COVID-19. And they found that in this cohort of about 300 patients, more than 80% of them were Black. Um, Researchers say that's a number that's higher than expected based on normal hospital admissions. There was an important caveat, though. Even though Black patients were more likely to be hospitalized for a severe course of this disease, they didn't necessarily have worse outcomes, so they weren't more likely to be, say, put on a ventilator or die than non-Black patients. Um, One of the other findings from this uh, report out this week that I I think is pretty interesting is of this cohort of patients who were hospitalized, more than one in four of those patients Mm -hmm. didn't necessarily have any risk factors for, for that would indicate they might be particularly vulnerable here. So they didn't necessarily have pre-existing conditions. They weren't necessarily older. Um, And so that really shows that one in four of all of us could really be at risk for this disease, even if we all think we're we're healthy and doing all right. And that's not to say anything about the people who do have Mm -hmm. underlying health conditions. And that's what's been so complexing about COVID-19. It seems every other day or every other week, there's something new and unusual with this virus. Uh, Meanwhile, Sam, in central Georgia, 
new information released concerning Central State Hospital. Yes, and this is the uh, Central State Hospital. This is one of five hospitals the state runs for people with mental illness and intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, there had been sporadic releases from this hospital about cases of COVID-19 among patients and staff. Um, the agency that runs the hospital, Georgia's Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities, um, had previously said two staff there had died. Um, well, this week, the agency finally put up kind of their own data dashboard of all the COVID-19 cases in all of their facilities. And that dashboard shows dozens of cases among patients and staff, and even one patient death here in Atlanta um, at Georgia Regional mm -hmm. Hospital. And I think it's worth noting that while Georgia's Department of Public Health has been putting out data about fatalities and cases for some time, other state agencies, it's really taken them time to put that data out there. We're weeks into this pandemic and we're just now getting this data from this agency that cares for some of our state's most vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that just really shows how this this, this pandemic that we're dealing with, the, the, the true nature of its scope and who it's affecting is really just still being understood at this time. There are a lot more questions and answers, that's for sure. Uh, and Sam, speaking of the data, the state rolled out a revamped website related to COVID-19, but it also came with a lot of criticism in terms of what information was, was being provided and also just navigating through it. You know, it is, I will say, um, it looks prettier than the other data website that uh, the Georgia Department of Public Health has been maintaining for the last month or so. But sure, it's, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to read. Um, there is a lot of information there for, uh, you know, your average individual to kind of understand and grasp. Um, and so while the State Department of Public Health, I think, has been, we'll say, refining the, the kind of data that they put out there for the public uh, to inform them about this pandemic, that process of refining um, seems to still be ongoing. Um, and so, you know, you might say, look at that website and see, there's one chart in particular that sticks out to me. You see the, the, the total number of cases over time. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at that chart, uh, you might, it seems like in the future, that total number of cases actually approaches zero. Mm -hmm. And uh, your average, you know, consumer, your average person might think, oh, well, they're predicting the cases are going to go down over time. That's not what that chart shows. It just shows that it takes time for information to come in um, and that, you know, for this for more recent time periods, we, we're still getting data reported in. So um, certainly there is a lot of information there, but you know, I, I don't necessarily think that your average individual immediately looks at that and, and automatically knows what they're looking at. Sam Whitehead is WABE's health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam, as always, I appreciate you. Stay safe and thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Rose. Thanks for having me. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. New data from the United States Department of Labor released just this week shows another 3.8 million unemployment claims were filed. Now, the past six weeks, that's a total of 30.3 million have filed for jobless claims. That's about one in six U.S. workers. And although there is some aid from the federal government, the financial toll of the coronavirus pandemic has hit small businesses especially hard. 
Well, here in the Atlanta area, a local property owner has made a decision, and he's going to tell me more about it. Joining me now to discuss this decision is developer Omar Ali. Omar, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. No problem, Rose. Good morning. I called you a developer. Is that an accurate title? I feel like there's a lot more in there. I would say so. Uh, we we are a developer slash construction company. Uh, you got it right. Yes, ma'am. Your business is a family one, correct? It is. Um, uh, my family is a, is a little unique. We were taught and raised to start our own business to figure out how to add on to the family companies, but it is a family run and operated company. And are we talking commercial and residential properties, developments, or both? Commercial. Uh, we originally made our name by doing federal work around the world. We've worked for every federal agency that you can think of. But once Trump signed Section 232, which affected the steel tariffs, we decided to move 50% of the company over into real estate and bring a lot of the work back to the state of Georgia. So how many properties or developments do you all, I guess, own? Currently, we're, we're new at this. We only own a total of three. Mm-hmm. Well, three three's a lot for some people. <laughs> it has its challenges. It's, it's ups and downs. But... Um, I enjoy it a little more than the regular construction industry. Um, I think the residual income can be good um, if we stick with it. And Omar, these properties, are they industrial commercial properties or retail developments? Mostly retail. What we try to focus on the roads is is coming into areas that are uh, high in crime and high in um, vacancy rates. Uh, to give you an example, that's one of the reasons why we chose the the Lakewood area that has a 48.8% vacancy rate mm-hmm. among residential buildings and a 78.9% vacancy rate among commercial buildings. So therefore, we know that's one of the leading causes when it comes to crime in that particular area. So we like to go into areas to solve that particular problem um, as developers. So Omar, what is the family philosophy behind this? Do you all feel this is a part of economic development, but also revitalization? It is. We try to follow our family model, our family creed. Uh, our family have a 300-year plan, and that 300-year plan is to take care of generations to come. And so we try to follow that same philosophy. How can we extend um, our plan to the community? How can we grow the community so that it will thrive for many generations to come? So... As this pandemic has hit all of us in different ways, in various ways, you and your business partner have made a decision in terms of collecting rent payments from those tenants. What's that decision? That was an extremely, extremely difficult um, decision from a financial standpoint, but it was an easy decision from a human standpoint. We decided to stop trying to collect rent and try to figure out how to work together um, with our with our tenants. And one of the reasons why I say it's difficult because our financial institution uh, will not let up and there's no signs for them to let up. And so we have to be extremely cautious that uh, we have to continue to pay our debts, but in good conscience, we couldn't put that pressure on our tenants because we underline where we understand where they're coming from. And these are obviously small business owners in that retail development that you're talking about, right? How many? Small business. We have a total of, uh, including the sub-tenants, you're looking at a probably around 10. Mm-hmm. And these are, are people that have been in the Atlanta area 
uh, operating from 10 to 25 years. So in good conscience, you know, we don't want to put them in a position to where they're going to go out of business. Uh, and they've been thriving here in Atlanta up until now. When you say you all are suspending collecting rent, how long are you all going to be able to do that? I don't know. Um, it's a situ- It's a double-edged sword. Uh, if we can't figure out how to collect money or, or pay our mortgage, um, then the mortgage company can step in and take the building, and therefore the tenants will be back in the same situation without a place to operate in. It's extremely, extremely scary situation, uh, and many people don't realize how it affects small business, how it affects minorities also. Um, when you take a building like ours that have so much equity in it, uh, the mortgage companies stand to win if they step in to take our particular property. So we don't know how, how much longer we can continue the, down this road. Did you all apply for any funding relief at all? We did. We applied for everything. We applied for the disaster relief. Um, it's like a black hole. <clears throat> you fill it out online and you don't know what happens after that. Um, there's no one to call and talk to directly about it. We originally told was told that we would get an answer within seven weeks. Uh, we called SBA back. That turned into four, two weeks, then three weeks, and now four weeks, and we still don't have an answer. Um, we don't know how they're selecting the one when it comes to that. So the next step was let us fill out the PPP program. Mm-hmm. And that caused some challenges also because uh, in our industry, 80% of the workers are 1099. So therefore that cut out most of our employees um, from our ability to be able to help them with the PPP program. Uh, and right now we're still waiting on the answer to that uh, from one bank. Hmm. How long do you think you can sustain not collecting the rent from those small business owners? I don't think we can go because we are uh, small developers also. I don't think we can go another 30 days or 60 days because it gets to the point rose to where um, we have to take money out of uh, our personal household in order to continue to go. And so it began to affect us. And yet I understand our tenants uh, so what do you do in that particular situation? But realistically speaking, I don't think we can uh, do it much more than 30 or 60 days. Have you spoken to your lender? I have spoken to our lender and our lender said that they are looking at it. They will get back to me. And at the meantime, we know that if it takes them too long to get back to us, they can put us in a situation to where they have the legal right to foreclose on the property. So we know that we can't get behind on our particular mortgage because when this is all said and done, um, they will step in and take the property. Do you know if some of the small business owners have reopened or they plan to reopen? They all plan to reopen. I talk to them on a weekly basis. They they are applying to every loan uh, application that you can think of also, but they're just in a very dire situation as, as well as us. You mentioned a moment ago that some of these Folks have been in business a long time. They've been staples mm-hmm. of the community. Is there no other alternative, Omar? It isn't. Um, the only alternative that we can have if the lenders are come through and give loans. Um, my father, uh, he's read the stimulus package, the entire stimulus package as is applied to the lending part of it. And there is just not anything in there for Uh, private lenders. When I say private lenders, that includes your large banks, because 
most commercial properties don't have uh, federal dollars in, involved with it, the majority of them. Um, so we're struggling to figure this out. And it's, it's, it's a shame that there's no mechanism in place by the federal government uh, as it relates to uh, private uh, lending. And it's, it's a trickle down effect. Uh, it, it affects everyone. It, it reminds me of the 2008 um, crash. Mm -hmm. And here we are again in a situation to where small business and minority companies are gonna suffer again. When you turn around, we're gonna end up losing homes. We're gonna end up losing commercial properties to where you have developers like us that fought so hard to bring up a particular uh, neighborhood. Uh, and here we are on the verge of possibly losing a particular property if we can't figure it out. And Omar, if you don't mind, this particular development that we're talking about, it's this, is this the one on Jonesboro Road? Yes, ma'am, 1800 Jonesboro Road, Southeast, uh, South Atlanta. And what kind of businesses are over there? So, so far we have um, a well-known spa in the area, Ewe Fresh. Um, mm -hmm. Fantastic spa. Uh, they frequent by celebrities, politicians. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very great. well. I'm very well aware of them. And then we have Tassili. Um, she's going to be coming there also. Uh, we have an event center, uh, a coffee shop. Uh, we converted the top floor into a doctor suite to where we have chiropractors, psychiatrists, and counselors on the very top floor. So overall, uh, you know, you're looking at anywhere between 10 to 15 tenants that's, uh, that's going to be affected. Hmm. Omar, you serve on the Georgia State Board for Residential and General Contractors. What's been the conversation with some of your fellow property owners that you all have been having about, obviously, the, the challenges during this time? The, the same sentiments, uh, they have the same sentiments as I have that, um, how do we all come out of this? Um, some of us disagree uh, about should the state be open um, or should be closed. I think it still should be closed, but uh, I do understand their position to where a lot of them are facing the same challenges that, that I'm facing. And so you have to take a hard look at how do you overcome this uh, from the top to bottom. And Omar, I'm curious, when did y'all make the decision to stop collecting rents? We made that decision uh, a month ago. Um, Rosa, it, it, it was a hard decision. I talked to my wife first, uh, then I talked to the family and let them know what's the best decision. Um, and we hope that the decision that we made uh, was the best decision. How much income or revenue have you all lost since this? All this. Uh, we, yes, ma'am. We lose uh, about $25,000 a month. Mm -hmm. So from the development standpoint, it's just not, um, it's not a small amount of money. Um, and from a personal standpoint, from a business standpoint, we only have finite resources ourselves mm -hmm. um, to where it's going to start affecting uh, my personal household within the next 30 days if I don't figure it out. So the next 30 days is crucial. It is extremely crucial. Um, we applied for the PPP program and I, for the life of me, I cannot figure that out. We, uh, we applied at two banks. Uh, one was uh, historically a uh, black owned bank. I, I don't want to call any names. And then we applied with another bank also. Uh, we applied with a historically black owned bank three weeks ago 
and they have yet to get a decision by SBA. And then we applied with another community bank and they have received a decision by SBA within three days. So it makes me think that something is going on behind the scenes. How, how could that be even possible? Did the bank make the make a mistake themselves? Or is it something that SBA is, is doing and the federal government that is doing also that prevents certain banks from getting money? Well, take that further, Omar. Are you saying that you think there is some intentional bias toward lenders? And particularly, are, are you talking about as relates to people of color or those that serve a high percentage of, of people of color? I think so, because we're living proof of that. we got two different banks. One bank has been struggling for three weeks to get us approved. Uh, and another bank got us approved in three, in three days. Fortunate for us, we had a relationship with the second bank. But that's far and few for other people. Uh, many people are not going to have those same relationships that we have uh, to help them out. Uh, and it's sad. If they're in the same situation that we're in, it's, just, it's extremely sad all around. So when you read reports that organizations and entities such as the Lakers and Ruth Chris Steakhouse receiving $20 million and Shake Shack and receiving a lot of money, and some of them have returned it. Now, I don't know why the Lakers needed money, but that's maybe that's another conversation. <laughs> but when you hear about that, uh, what are your thoughts on the process here? It, it pisses me off. Um, how could that happen? Uh, is there not a watchdog looking over this? Um, how did the banks allow this to happen? Because the banks know that they're not small business. Uh, SBA know that they're not small business. So we blame the federal government and we blame the banks for doing it also. Someone should have stepped in at some particular point and said, we can't do this. Mm -hmm. uh, this money is not meant for you all. It's meant for the small business. Um, you know, no matter what politician is running, everyone always talk about small business is the backbone of the United States. But uh, we are the ones that continue to be at the bottom of the list over and over and over again. Omar, as we wrap up, what do you think will be the state of development, particularly in a city like Atlanta, now mm -hmm. with so many concerns and guidelines about do we need to continue with social distancing guidelines from here on out? But as a developer, do you change your process in terms of what you build or, or what you redevelop? How do you see this, this changing? I think you have to uh, adapt to it. So one of the things that we're going to ask ourselves going into other developments do we take the risk of bringing in certain type of companies such as restaurants um, that may not have the ability to survive? Uh, do we focus on an entire different sector uh, to move forward? How do we complete the construction when we have to stay so many feet apart, which is almost impossible in the construction industry? So we're gonna, we're gonna have to reevaluate everything uh, and to determine how to move forward to make sure that we are viable um, in this industry because there's very, very few companies like us that truly have the community at heart. Uh, because in addition to our commercial property, we are building 40 uh, affordable homes in the Atlanta area also. Mm -hmm. Will that continue? Can you all continue that? We're going to put the affordable homes on hold because if we continue to build the homes, can the homeowners obtain the loan to get them? Um, and we don't want to be stuck with a huge inventory and, and just can't sell the homes. Um, 
as scary times rolls, um, we don't know what this year is going to bring. Uh, can we survive? Can other companies survive? When it all shake out, I think the large companies are going to get wealthier, just like they did with the um, 2008 crash. Uh, those who have the deep pockets, uh, the extremely strong connection, they are going to be the ones that's going to survive. Developer Omar Ali, local developer here in the Atlanta area, talking about the decision to suspend collecting rents from his tenants who are small business owners. Omar, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you. Keep us posted. Thank you, Rose. Pleasure speaking with you as well. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned earlier in the program, Governor Brian Kemp's shelter-in-place order expired. Now, the governor had already decided to keep Georgia's beaches open. This came after some city and county leaders throughout the state had already closed the beaches in their communities. And that was problematic. Here's Tybee Island Mayor Shirley Sessions. We don't have any medical facilities. We don't have a doctor, a professional office doctor on Tybee. We have one way on and one way off, a two-lane road that gets us to the mainland. So there were a number of, of concerns that we had. That was Mayor Sessions on an earlier edition of Closer Look. Well, the mayor is now back with an update on how the community is doing as visitors continue to flock to the island. Mayor Sessions, thank you for joining me again. Thank you. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, um, and I appreciate your interest in Tyvee. Uh, we are expecting a very busy weekend. Uh, the weather is promising to be beautiful, and people are ready to come to the beach in spite of the uh, potential health situation mm -hmm. that they could put themselves in and others. Yesterday late, we un we learned that the Department of Natural Resources, uh, who fall under the governor's office, have decided to continue their ban with uh, no coolers, no tents, mm -hmm. no chairs on the beach um, through May 6th. So, Mayor, let, so, me, let, me, let me stop you then. I apologize. I want to, uh, just for sure. our listeners, just want to back up for a moment because obviously you had some concerns about the governor's decision to reopen these beaches. You had some concerns about your longtime residents there. Um, who might be older citizens. But from what I understand, that you all could expect to see nearly 10,000 folks this weekend? Well, we, we're projecting, we have a traffic count. We're projecting anywhere from eight to 10,000 cars. Now, I, okay. how many people are in a car, that is an unknown. But this past weekend, we had 7,000 cars um, on the beach. And it, this weekend, so much has changed. More people are wanting to come to the beach, and they just see this as an outlet. And um, so, yes, we are expecting to have that many, a lot of people on the beach. And uh, 
we are revving up for it. And by that, I mean, we are, like I said, we, we're trying to keep cars out of our residential area mm -hmm. because a lot of people will park. Um, if there's not a parking space, they will uh, intrude into the residential neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. In order to avoid that, we decided to open up more parking lots so that there would be more accessible parking. And Mayor, those guidelines announced by the Department of Natural Resources, you know, obviously it's meant to stop the spread of the coronavirus, but is that enough? How do you put yeah. in social distancing guidelines at a beach? You know what, there is absolutely unrealistic to, to think that social distancing is going to happen when you have thousands of people in a very small area. It's just not realistic. We don't have the resources to, to do it. And the very nature of people mingling together, groups of people, um, and, and not to mention putting our police officers or the Georgia State Patrol or the, natural, uh, the Department of Natural Resources, whoever, putting them in the position to have to ask people to move to separate, um, and often people do get belligerent. Mayor Sessions, other than the Georgia Department of Natural Resources and their guidelines, are you getting any other assistance, any other resources from the state to help you with this? No, only State Patrol are here. They're visible, but they have not written any citations, nor has the Department of Natural Resources, they haven't written any citations. They do give warnings. Um, the Tybee police officers have started writing citations last weekend because we were seeing so much inappropriate activity, people jumping over crosswalks, jumping into sand dunes. So we, we had to um, ask our city manager to have our chief police to be a little bit more assertive. And, and handing out citations. And it has made a difference. It's sad. Mm -hmm. We did not want to resort to punitive actions, but um, it's getting people's attention that, you know, we're, we're not going to allow you in the sand dunes. And if you do, be prepared to get a ticket. And that, mm -hmm. that, that sounds harsh, but if people, people live here and people who come to Tybee, this is everybody's beach. It's just not... Tybee's Beach is everybody's beach. And when you're here, we just ask that you treat it the way you would your home and be respectful. And um, that is what we're trying to encourage. Speaking of encouraging messages, what have you told your residents, the folks who live in the community and particularly those who might be vulnerable to the COVID-19? What have you said to them? What messaging has come out of your office, Mayor? We are very respectful of our residents and we trust their judgment. They know what is happening. They know the dangers. They know, um, you know, what, what could potentially be a threat to them. And we're just reminding them to, to pay attention to that. And to, to if they're comfortable going out, certainly that they, they live here. They should be able to do that. But if you know, if they are in the least bit uncomfortable, you know, we're asking that they stay home mm -hmm. and that they, you know, exercise around the island and not the beach. And what about your business owners? What's the message uh, to them? With the understanding that, that they would use those gift cards to our local businesses. Mm -hmm. For example, we would sell a 
$50 gift card at the rate of $25 to a resident. And the resident would go into a gift, uh, a shop and they would have $50 to spend. And then the, the sh uh, shop owner would come to the city to get reimbursed for the $25 that we um, put into that um, okay. program. So we're, we're trying to encourage residents to spend money on Tybee and help the businesses at the same time. And Mayor Sessions, will you be out this weekend just to survey the scene? Absolutely. I will be out with my mask and um, will with uh, definitely space distancing. And um, I, I like to take pictures um, just to see because the governor has told me from the beginning to take photos. And if things changed, he would he would reevaluate. And, and I have done that. And I've, I unfortunately have not received any feedback from those photos. So um, but I will still re re I will continue to do that. Um, and, and these are photos of people who are space distancing as well as those who are not. Is photos of people who are walking and, and running, as well as people who are just laying on the beach in their chairs, um, and pictures of people who are uh, in the ocean in areas that they should not be in because we do not have lifeguards in place. We won't have lifeguards in place until the end of May. So that's another huge safety mm -hmm. factor that is a, a great concern because we have very strong riptides in certain areas of the beach. And a lot of people who are not familiar with that just don't understand how dangerous, how dangerous that it is. is. How concerning is it for you about a potential increase in uh, coronavirus cases with this many people coming in and out Tybee Island? Of course, it's very concerning, especially when you look at the numbers and when you look at the projections. And recently I saw a... a a projection that Georgia, two counties in Georgia, Clark County and Chatham County, which is the county that Tybee and Savannah are in, uh, are pro pro projected to be, um, you know, hot peaking and uh, getting more cases. And um, what's and what's really unfortunate for Tybee, we'll be able to have numbers that reflect anyone on Tybee who lives on Tybee if they do get sick with the with the virus, we'll be able to get those numbers from the local health department if it happens, but we won't be able to have any idea how many people are leaving the island and taking the virus with them mm -hmm. and taking it back to their home, wherever that may be, and potentially getting sick. And again, we don't want to come across as demanding like a government saying, stay home, stay home, just gently reminding people you know, I know you want to go out. Maybe this is just not the best time, especially on a busy weekend that's projected to be very busy. Tybee Island Mayor Shirley Sessions, thank you so much for taking the time and giving us an update. Um, stay safe this weekend. You're going to be out. And, um, and Rose, thank you. And I hope to see you down here soon. Well, not this weekend. <laughs> No, I ain't coming this say, weekend, Mayor. When I say soon, I'm talking three months. Uh, yeah, it might be a little longer, <laughs> but uh, thank you, Mayor. Thank you. You be safe bye -bye. out there. All right. You too. Thank you. All right. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 
The villages of East Lake. It's an apartment complex here in Atlanta, and it's considered a model for redevelopment when it comes to transforming a low-income area to a thriving, sustainable community. Now, this 542-unit complex and the area surrounding it is a template for what's called a purpose-built community. And by definition, the purpose-built concept is about neighborhood revitalization and implementing opportunities for its low-income residents. And it's supported by the East Lake Foundation. In fact, the foundation supports many initiatives for the community. Joining me now is Danny Shoy Jr., president and CEO of the East Lake Foundation. Danny, it's been some time. Welcome back to the program. Rose, thank you. I'm grateful for this opportunity to be on with you to talk about what's going on in East Lake. How y'all doing over there? We're surviving. We're definitely surviving. You know, East Lake is a community that is known for its resilience. Mm-hmm. So certainly for many of our families who were already vulnerable, this is extremely hard. But uh, Eastlake has seen some hard times and and we've been able to get past that. And I have no doubt that that will be the case through the current uh, COVID-19 pandemic. You know, Danny, I gave a very brief description of the Eastlake Foundation created in 1995, but this organization has evolved quite a bit over the years. We have, we have. We are actually celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. Uh, It's hard to believe that so many years have gone by and we continue to be focused on supporting our residents in the villages of East Lake, the families that are served by Drew Charter School and uh, through the rest of our Cradle College Education Pipeline uh, that has um, some early learning partners, uh, certainly having the benefit of having the East Lake YMCA on the ground and the Charlie Yates course and Mm -hmm. Publix and so many wonderful things that have, have been happening. Let's talk about the residents of the villages of East Lake. Through your lens, tell us about this community of people. Sure. So our residents in the villages of East Lake are everyday, ordinary people, just like you and I. They are people who want to thrive, who want to see their children do well, um, who have the same view of the American dream that we do. But for ha- about half of them, Uh, They are people who have unfortunately suffered the pang of intergenerational poverty. Mm -hmm. The East Lake Foundation and its partners work day in and day out diligently to remove the grip of intergenerational poverty by providing them a breadth and scope of services that allow them to access their full potential. You all are also known for helping to promote health and wellness for residents and I'm going to the question of, to your knowledge, do you know if there have been any reported cases of COVID-19 among the residents? So we've actually had uh, one case uh, that, that I'm aware of uh, and certainly are taking all the necessary precautions um, at a community level. So Drew Charter School, as did the rest of Atlanta Public Schools, uh, closed its closed its physical facility and uh, has been relying on e-learning from a distance mm-hmm. uh, since the middle of March. Um, certainly the Y uh, has closed its facility by and large uh, and have been providing um, some programs for children, primarily for uh, essential workers who you know are on the front lines. Mm-hmm. And the Y has uh, been transformed into a distribution center for families that need access to uh, food and other essential services. Um, and the Yates course, uh, which is the, 
public course that was developed out of the transformation 25 years ago has been closed until recently. So we're, we're taking all the necessary precautions to make sure that people can stay safe and healthy uh, and also connected to essential, essential services. It's been critically important for us, uh, us being the ESA Foundation and its partners, to try to um, allow people to, to retain their housing, mm-hmm. to retain their utilities, uh, and as I mentioned, have access to food. So, Danny, let's back up for a moment because I imagine you all had to come up with some type of strategic plan and how you would need or possibly need to help your residents. How far back did you all start planning? Well, uh, we did. Um, so you'd be delighted to know that we took the threat of the pandemic very seriously very early. Uh, so our foundation formed a crisis response team. And we developed a what we call a business continuity and crisis response plan um, that pretty much set us up from as early as uh, March 13th, which was the first day that we began, our staff began working remotely to be able to um, ensure that we wouldn't have to disrupt our, our business operations. So mm-hmm. we continue to raise money. Um, our staff is working safely and remotely from home because it's a paramount importance that the residents in Eastlake know that we are there for them uh, and that we will continue to offer services, but offer it in a way that's not only safe for them, but safe for us and our families. We were able to launch our COVID-19 relief fund, which um, about a little more than half of the million dollar fund will ensure that residents retain their housing uh, so that no one is evicted, and not just in this immediate time. Mm-hmm. I know that there uh, were efforts by the city and others to prevent people from being evicted uh, for the month of April and May, but we know that this pandemic is so disruptive that it will take additional supports and resources mm-hmm. beyond uh, 60 days just to keep people in place, to keep their utilities on, and to make sure that people can eat and they have the personal items uh, that, they, that they need to be safe. Danny, what's been the biggest need that you all have been hearing from from the residents? The biggest need has been uh, really support around food, uh, which is why I'm really glad that we have been able now, through a few different efforts, to provide food, right? And, and you think that sounds basic and that most of us don't worry about how we'll eat. But as I mentioned before, um, many of our families in ESAC know what it is to be vulnerable. So this pandemic could be debilitating for them. For the East State Golf Club two weeks ago, uh, Chef Nick Barrington specifically was able to work with his friends at the Atlanta Chefs Association um, and really catalyze them to pull together a quick uh, service opportunity where um, volunteers, about 75 volunteers over the course of three days, spent the first day uh, packing uh, about 2,100 boxes of food and then spent the next two days, that Saturday and Sunday, distributing uh, that, that food to families. Mm-hmm. The families were able to literally drive up in a safe way to the East State Golf Club and have volunteers distribute this food and do it in a way that allows them to retain their, their dignity and their grace during this difficult time. And we are preparing to do that, uh, Rose, again this weekend uh, over the, the next three days. We'll start today mm-hmm. uh, with the packing of the food. Um, and then the distributing of it on Saturday and Sunday at and, the East State Golf Club. 
So this will be at the East Lake Golf Club. It will. It will. And we will have a portion of that. We'll have approximately 500 boxes of food that will be given to our partners at the East Lake YMCA for them to also be able to distribute it on site there at the East Lake Y. And Danny, is that just for the residents of the villages of East Lake or someone in the surrounding community? Oh, it's it's absolutely not. It's it's not limited. We always try to in everything that we do, uh, even when uh, before this pandemic, we always try to prioritize our families in the villages of East Lake, mm -hmm. many of whom are served by um, the Drew Charter School and by the Early Learning Partners, by the Y, by the Yates course, by the many programs and services that we have in East Lake. But we're always thoughtful to include the surrounding neighborhood, uh, and then even beyond the surrounding uh, neighborhood. So I know with our last food distribution, we opened it up uh, to um, our partners um, with the Start Me program, which is operated out of the Center for Social Enterprise at Emory's Business School, mm -hmm. for them to be able to get out and notice to the families that they serve uh, in South Atlanta, uh, the families that they serve in Clarkston, which you know is a large uh, refugee mm -hmm. uh, and immigrant population. So it's certainly about the larger community and not just about East. You know, Danny, over the years, I've certainly enjoyed coming over and covering the tour championship. I was there when Tiger one uh, a year and and i was i've always enjoyed it uh, i always tell people as you know uh, i play golf but i'm not a golfer um and so we know how important the tour championship is it's been postponed uh due to the pandemic obviously this year but uh, you all are expecting it to come back the revenue from that is such a critical part for what you all do that's right rose we are looking forward to a delayed tour championship so as you mentioned it was moved from late August to now being September 3rd through 7th. So the tournament will actually end on Labor Day. Uh, and it is such a critical uh, source of revenue for the Eastlake Foundation. We're fortunate to have it um, provide nearly half of the revenue that we need for our year round operations. And certainly grateful for the tour championship um, because a portion of their 2019 proceeds actually benefited our COVID-19 emergency relief fund in Eastlake. Mm -hmm. um, so we're looking forward to uh, having the tournament this year. And I know that the Tour Championship and the PGA and the Eastlake Golf Club will take all the necessary precautions to make sure that um, the players and their families and spectators all have a safe experience. Now, Danny, there is a problem, though. It's What's Labor that? Day weekend. It's the same weekend as Dragon Con, man. It is. It's the same weekend as Dragon Con and Black Pride. But you know what? There's a lot of events going on. What am I supposed to do? You, you look, you can split your time. That's the best <laughs> thing with the PGA and, and the You want me to come over to the Tour Championship with a bunch of stormtroopers? You, you, you absolutely <laughs> And hobbits can. and goblins? <laughs> you, you, and superheroes? <laughs> Everybody is welcome. Everybody's welcome. Look, we're accustomed to having superheroes on the course. And I say that uh, not at all to be tongue in cheek, but knowing what these 30 players do uh, year round to be able to make the uh, finale, the, the end of the, the tour championship, um, the end of the tour rather, uh, and what it means for not just Eastlake, but also Grove Park Foundation, which serves the uh, Grove Park community mm -hmm. and also for purpose-built schools, Atlanta and uh FCS working on the historic south side of Atlanta. So, Rose, I'm expecting to see you there in early September <laughs> and you can bring the hobbits, like you said, and the, the, the stormtroopers, uh, and then certainly also still celebrate pride. There's enough love to go around. Danny, as we wrap up, 
just your thoughts on what this pandemic reveals in terms of how people in, in our country are living and what needs to happen in terms of equity and all those inequities that exist. This pandemic is definitely bearing out with a, I think, more of a glaring lens than I've ever seen before, the inequity that exists because of broken systems in our country. And these are broken systems in housing, in education, uh, in healthcare, uh, in employment, you name it. Uh, and these are systems that have existed now for a while, but the impact of this pandemic shows how, how fragile and vulnerable families are in this country, particularly uh, uh, in communities of color, in black and, and, and brown communities. Mm -hmm. uh, it's making us rethink the way that we do business. Uh, and that's not just the nonprofit sector, that's also for the, the for-profit sector as well, and making us realize the things that we take for granted. So this is a moment in time. I know a lot of other leaders uh, across the nonprofit sector and in the for-profit sector um, have been saying that they can't wait for things to go back to normal. Uh, but I'm actually hopeful that things won't go back to the way that they were because things were not normal before. And we have the moral responsibility and obligation to take a new look through a racial equity lens at how all Americans, regardless of race, uh, regardless of gender, and regardless of zip code, uh, can realize the American dream. Danny Choi Jr., President and CEO of the East Lake Foundation. We've been talking about how the foundation is helping the residents of the villages of Eastlake. Danny, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for what you and your foundation are doing for folks during this time. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Rose, for the opportunity to come on Closer Look and talk about so many wonderful things in, in Eastlake. I'm always grateful for the opportunity that you give us to raise awareness about our work and to uh, shed light on the need that we have in Eastlake, which we All right, see you on the golf course, huh? I can't wait. <laughs> Take care, Danny. Thank you, Rose. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.